Amen. So this morning, our goal is to look at many of the prophecies about Jesus Christ found in the Old Testament. Now within the Bible, there's anywhere from 200 to 450 prophecies which have been historically interpreted as being about the Messiah. So to get through 450, we'd have lunch, we'd have dinner, probably breakfast tomorrow morning, right? Just reading through them. So we'll just get through a handful of them this morning. Goal is to look at a few of the prophecies. We'll talk real quick on the mathematical probabilities of one person fulfilling all of these prophecies. And then we'll camp out on one portion of scripture, uh, maybe uh, a bit uh, right, ambitious with how much we'll get done this morning, uh, but we'll see. Many movies, many works of literature have prophecies contained in their books or within their films. Right? To us, we have this book. We would call this a book. I don't see anybody here with a scroll here this morning, right? Different scroll for each book of the Bible. We have this book. Maybe you have your electronic Bible, whatever the case may be. But there are many books, many works of literature, many movies that have prophecies contained within those works. Even within Greek mythology, right? You have Oedipus, the king, and there's prophecy within that story. You have Shakespeare's Macbeth. Maybe you had to do a play in high school on Shakespeare's Macbeth, right? And you have prophecies within the works of Shakespeare. Uh, for some of the Star Wars fans here, right? There's prophecies even within the Star Wars trilogies, right? How one would come and he would bring balance to the force, right? Uh, those that are fans of the Matrix, everybody's waiting for the one that would come and end the war and bring freedom to everybody outside of the Matrix. Uh, for the Lord of the Rings fans, right? One ring to rule them all, right? And there's prophecies throughout all of these different works of literature in these movies. Harry Potter, one of the greatest films of our day, and the Lego movie, right? That has a, a prophecy within it. <laughs> if you have kids here, right? Prophecy, one day a talented lasser fellow, a special one with face of yellow, will make the peace of resistance found from its hiding refuge underground. And with a noble army at the helm, this master builder will thwart the craggle and save the realm and be the greatest, most interesting, most important person of all times. And all this is true because it rhymes, right? Uh, so that's not where we get our truth and what is truth. We get truth from the Bible. Hopefully you don't judge truth just because something rhymes. But throughout so many works of literature and movies, there are prophecies. And yet scripture contains so much prophecy. There are pastors that that sort of their hobby horse is only biblical prophecy. There's famous people within church that all they do, all they handle is prophecy. We know that Jesus, he truly is the spirit of prophecy, because all prophecy should be leading and drawing people to him. So the very first prophecy is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It reads, And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, for my mind, timelines help me understand God's word or movies or things better. So just a little bit of a biblical outline here. The book of Genesis is written sometime around 1400 B.C. by Moses. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, and he's writing it down sometime around 1400 B.C. 
Much of history has already taken place because Moses is able to write about creation. He's able to write down really before creation takes place. He's writing about Abraham, about the flood, about so many things. Right? Think of Jacob, Joseph. He's writing about so much of history, but his lifetime is somewhere around 1400 B.C. In that moment when Moses is transported, whether just spiritually or also physically, from earth to somewhere in the throne room of God where he's seeing the tabernacle out there played out in reality of the throne room of God. And then he's given the plans to create the temple and create the tabernacle. Maybe at some point there, God gives him the pen, gives him the scroll and says, start taking notes. So there's not a specific date when creation started doesn't tell us that God started creation on January 1st at 12 a.m., right, in 4000 B.C. But our best mathematical estimate is that creation would have taken place sometime around 4000 B.C. Then the flood would take place sometime around 2300 B.C., so 1700 years from creation to the flood. Then after the flood, you have Abraham, and he was called sometime around 2100 BC. So about 200 years after the flood, after the waters went down, the ark is there. Noah starts off his family, right? About 200 years afterwards is when Abraham's called. And then finally, fast forwarding to the end of the book, the book of Revelation is written sometime around 94 AD. So you have all of this history, right? Oh, oh, 4,000 years. To our day, we have 6,000 years of world history here. And yet, this first prophecy of Jesus, it's sometime around 4,000 B.C. Jesus comes around, right? Right around 0 B.C. or 0 A.D., uh, give or take a few years. And it all starts off with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Here we have after Adam and Eve have sinned, Eve... She was tricked into it. Adam knew exactly what he was doing, which is why all throughout the New Testament, we look to Adam where we've received our sin from. Right? It's through him. We could go through First and Second Timothy. So much of Scripture, our sin is because of Adam. But in Genesis 3.15, we'll read through it again, and, and now we'll go through the verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He sh shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is incredible. Charles Spurgeon says this is the first gospel sermon that ever was delivered upon the surface of the earth. And it's memorable because Jehovah himself, God himself is the preacher of the message. And then it's the whole human race and the prince of darkness there as his audience. Right? The whole gospel in one verse. The whole book of the Bible in one verse. All of history in one verse. You see, this word enmity is a personal hostility or a personal hatred. So God is saying as a result of the fall, as a result of sin, as a result of Satan being in the form of a serpent and tricking Eve, God is going to place hostility and hatred between humans and between snakes, right? Take a quick poll here. How many of you like snakes? Any people like snakes here, right? We got probably twice as many as the first service. How many of you do not like snakes, right? Look at that majority. Biblical prophecy fulfilled today, right? <laughs> fulfilled today. God has placed a personal hostility and hatred within mankind against serpents. 
But it's not only between mankind and serpents, right? It's also between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. Satan's seed being the evil spirits. Satan's seed also being wicked men and women. The New Testament tells us that there's only two types of people. Sons of darkness and sons of light. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. We are all either sons and daughters of the light or sons and daughters of darkness. So not only is there a division, a hostility, and a hatred between the seed of Satan, but also against the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman would one day be the Messiah, would be the chosen one, would be the one to free us and save us. Now seed, for you biologists here, those that took any type of science, we know that the seed or semen is contained in men. What women bring to the table are the eggs. So this is also foretelling that there'll be no human man involved with the conception of the one who will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. You could just write down Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Another prophecy here found within the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Isaiah says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. What's the sign that God himself is going to give to all of humanity? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, from the seed of the woman. It's a virgin that gives birth to a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. So much contained within this one verse within the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. God continues in this gospel message and in this prophecy. He says, the seed of the woman, he's going to bruise your head, speaking to the serpent, and he's going to bruise his heel. You see, the head of the serpent speaks of his power and authority. We speak of the head of the household, the head of the home, the head of state. We talk about the head, and it's the person that has power and authority and position. And the power and authority of the snake, we could think of the venom contained within the snake, right, within its fangs. And one day, the power and authority and venom of the snake would be crushed by the foot of the coming Messiah. The power and authority of sin and of death would be crushed by this coming Messiah. Let's turn to Mark chapter 2, and we'll see how Jesus was fulfilling this even before his death and resurrection on the cross and in the tomb. You go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Now again, Put yourself here, right? Put yourself in the sandals of the people walking around Capernaum. 
There's no cell phones. There's no social media. There's no email. Forget even rotary phone. And just the word of mouth within the city of Capernaum that Jesus was here gathered such a mass of people that they couldn't fit in the house. They couldn't even come near the front door of the house. All by word of mouth. Everybody leaving everything to go and see Jesus. Then he's preaching the word to them. And then verse 3, Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Right? Hopefully they lowered him down slowly and not too quickly, right? Depends on the last thing he told his friends, how quickly they lowered him down. But we see here, right? They come to the house. Maybe they go to the back of the house. All four of them climb up there. They pull their buddy up. And then they start demolishing a huge hole in the roof of the house. They lower their friend down. Verse 5. Jesus saw their faith. And he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Right? Jesus sees the faith of these four friends. And now he looks to the paralytic and says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. I encourage you in this season, continue to pray and pray with faith and hope for your unsafe friends, unsafe family members, those prodigals. Continue to pray, continue to bring them to Jesus. Then in verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The power of Jesus Christ, right? Some people, there's always that question, if you could have any superpower, what would you have, right? Every once in a while, people say they want to read minds. I don't know many guys that say they want to read minds, right? But a lot of the ladies, they want to know what people are saying about them. I always think of my grandma. There was a while there where she needed hearing aids, right? She actually needed them. And she started saying, I don't want to hear what people are saying about me, right? I'm just not going to get them here. But Jesus has the power to know the thoughts of these men. These scribes are in a corner saying, who does this guy think he is that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus is here. He's dealing with the paralytic. He's told him, son, your sons are forgiven you. Now he's hearing the conversation of these scribes. The house is packed with people. And then in verse 8, it says, but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them. Right? He, he looks at them through the crowd, the packed house, and he looks directly at them and he says, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Again, the power of Jesus Christ, he heals the man in an instant. Most of us, we can't even get out of bed in an instant, right? And this man who's been paralyzed, the muscles, the nerve endings, all of that's all been damaged in an instant. He's able to get up, he gets his bed, and he walks out of the room. 
the power of Jesus Christ. He's already starting to bruise the power and the venom of the snake, the power and the venom of Satan, which is sin. He's already starting to attack that by healing people and saving people from their sins. In Romans chapter 6, verse 18, it tells us, Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Right? The power of the gospel. No matter what you have done today, Christ has forgiven you. No matter what you've done today. No matter what you did last week, a month ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, that secret that you are just so petrified that people will find out about, Christ has forgiven you. He paid it on the cross. And now if we've come to him, we've been set free from the power and authority of Satan, and we have become slaves of righteousness. He not only frees us from sin, but he frees us from death itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, Paul declares, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's crushing the power and authority of Satan. Death it no longer has a sting if we are in Jesus Christ. If we're in Jesus Christ, we can be happy. No more pain. No more taxes, right? None of this stuff, right? We get to just be in heaven for all of eternity with him. And we get to be with others who have, ex- have accepted him as Lord and Savior of their lives. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's going to be a great reunion. The joy we have in church or the joy we have when we go to different retreats and camps, the fellowship we have, we're going to have that for all of eternity in heaven and we'll all be perfect so we won't get on each other's nerves, right? (laughs) We'll have that for all of eternity. Oh, death, where is your sting? We could turn to Galatians chapter 4 and hear Paul talking about how this prophecy has already been fulfilled. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. It says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Again, God has sent his only begotten son to save us from our sins, to save us, that we would be able to be adopted into the family of Christ, where now we get to look at God, not fearful of him, not scared that he's going to hit us with a lightning bolt, not scared that he's going to destroy us. We, through Jesus Christ, get to come to him and cry out saying, Abba, Father. Our prayers should be filled with Abba, Father. We don't just talk to God as this great omniscient one, the great powerful one, the creator of heaven and earth. No, we get to cry out to God saying, Abba, 
Father. This is all through the work of Jesus Christ. Finally, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, And you shall bruise his heel. Now, is there anything worthwhile in life that is free? Anything in life that's worthwhile that's free? No. Is there anything in life that's free, period, right? Everything has a price. Whether it's money, whether it's our time, whether it's our emotions, right? Whether it's our gray matter, everything. Everything comes with a price. So as Jesus crushes the head of Satan, there was a price to be paid. His heel was bruised. The one who would crush the head of the serpent would be bruised. He would go through pain. He'd go through agony while defeating the serpent and all of his power and venom. There was a price to be paid for our salvation. The freedom from sin and from death came at a heavy cost. But God was willing to pay that cost to save you and to save me. Charles Spurgeon says, That bruised heel is painful enough. Behold, our Lord in His human nature sore bruised. He was betrayed. He was bound, accused, buffeted, scourged, spat upon. He was nailed to the cross and He hung there in thirst and in fever and in darkness and in desertion. There was a price to be paid on the cross. Yes, the gift of eternal life, it's free to us, but there was a price and a cost to be paid. And now for us, there's a price as well to daily pick up our cross and follow Him. And Jesus, He teaches us by example. He took the cross. He embraced the shame thinking of us and redeeming us and bringing us back to Him. So again, there's so much within Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. A few more of these prophecies before we camp out. In Genesis 22, verse 18, God tells Abraham, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So God makes a covenant and a promise with Abraham that through his seed, through his lineage, the coming Messiah would come. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 and 19, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel a, and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Verse 19 says, Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. So from Abraham... Then from Jacob, not from Ishmael, right? The chosen one, the Messiah, the Savior of the world will come. And one day he will have dominion over everything. He has dominion now, but it's on loan, right? It's on loan to reveal to each and every one of us who are we going to serve. But one day it will no longer be on loan. All of it will be back in his control. Finally, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 it says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This foretells how Jesus, how the Savior of humanity, would be born in Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah. Now again, we don't have time to go through all of the 400 or 300, depending on the number, of these messianic prophecies. A gentleman by the name of Peter Stoner 
was once the chairman of the departments of mathematics and of astronomy at Pasadena City College. And he wrote this book that's called Science Speaks. And he's talking about how science speaks to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. He states that just a handful of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, him being born in Bethlehem, being preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist, him entering Jerusalem on a donkey, him being betrayed by a friend who specifically receives 30 pieces of silver, a man who was silent before his accusers, a man who died in the manner that Romans used for criminals, which was crucifixions. A man who would have his hands and his feet pierced. The chances of any man in history fulfilling all of these prophecies would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. You tell me what that number is, right? 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Those are the chances of any single person in history fulfilling all of these prophecies. To help visually comprehend these staggering odds, he proposed that we take that many silver dollars and lay them across the state of Texas. And in doing so, we'll find out that it wouldn't just be one stack of silver dollars. In fact, the stack would line up to two feet high. But wait, there's more, right? Like the infomercials. Now we take one of those silver dollars and we mark it, right? You put a little star on it, a red X, whatever you want. And now you just throw it into that mass of coins. Blindfold someone and tell them they can travel however far they want across Texas. But he needs to pick out the one marked coin. Him choosing that coin, that's the odds there of a single person fulfilling the 300 plus prophecies of Jesus Christ. Again, just the power of Christ, the power of who he is. We need to know. Some people say, I I can't jump into that Christianity thing yet because it's just such a blind faith, right? I don't know if you ever heard someone say that before. It's not, you're blinded until you see it. Literally is what scripture tells us. Science points to it. All of truth points to it. All of history points to Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament points to Jesus Christ. He is the most significant person that has ever existed. Not Elon Musk, not Donald Trump, not whoever your favorite person is, right? It is Jesus Christ. He is the most significant person ever. So for us to know, it's not a blind faith. If you want some books on this, uh, there's one book entitled The Case for Christ, another book that's entitled More Than a Carpenter, and they look at, again, just the historical data, the scientific data, even within literature, how it all goes back to Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Psalm 22, and we're going to camp out here a while because there are so many prophecies within Scripture about the coming of Jesus Christ There are many scriptures of the death of Jesus Christ, and then there's more scriptures and more prophecies on the second coming or the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. But here in Psalm 22, we have one of the most beloved characters in all of the Bible. We think of David, right? For many people, David is their favorite Bible character. And when we think of David, usually the first thing you think of is him defeating Goliath, right? Probably this most well-known thing that he's done. Second most well-known thing that he's done, sadly, is his sin with Bathsheba. 
Others may think of him as a shepherd, as the king of Israel, as the greatest king of Israel, as the psalmist of Israel. But I don't know how many of you think of David as a prophet. And here in Psalm 22, David is writing a psalm that is complete prophecy, pointing directly to Jesus Christ there upon the cross. Before we dive in here, we have to keep in mind the form of execution in the time of David was stoning. That's how you would crucify someone. You would push them over a large wall or over a large cliff, and then you'd gather every rock you could find, and you would throw it on top of them. And that's how they would execute someone. And here David is going to go through the crucifixion and how execution would take place through crucifixion. Hundreds of years before crucifixion ever existed, and literally a thousand years before Jesus Christ. The power of Scripture, the power of the Bible, the power of Jesus Christ. All of these different authors, yes, the Bible to us is one book, but it's literally a library of 66 books. And yet they all point to Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, verse 1 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Again, you search through the Old Testament, and if you search that word forsaken, it's always God talking about his redemption and his love for the nation of Israel saying, But I will not forsake them. But I will not forsake them. And here, speaking of Jesus Christ on the cross, he's crying out saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 6, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. To think of someone being put to death, usually it's a pretty quiet room, a pretty quiet setting. But on the cross, they were mocking Jesus. They're saying, he saved the others. Let's see if he could save himself. He spoke of being the son of God. Can he take himself off of the cross? He was mocked and ridiculed after he was already beaten and bruised beyond human recognition. Verse 9, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. 
And they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. This speaks of the demonic activity around Jesus Christ there on the cross. You see, Psalm 22 shows us what Jesus was thinking there on the cross. The gospel shows us what people were seeing, what people were thinking, what the Roman soldier thought, what the people thought, what the disciples thought, what the Pharisees were saying, what the Roman soldiers were doing. But Psalm 22 tells us what Jesus was thinking while he was there on the cross. All of these demons around him, encircling him, gaping at him, raging at him, probably mocking him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. All of his weight is there upon his hands and his feet upon those three nails. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of the earth, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. How the Roman soldiers, Jesus, he didn't have a house, didn't have a bed, he didn't have a donkey. He just had a, a cloak. So the soldiers, instead of ripping it in pieces, they decided to cast lots in order to choose who would win that robe. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That word forsake means to give up on, to leave entirely. My God, my God, why have you left me entirely alone? Why have you left me all alone? And this is exactly what Jesus declares on the cross, his fourth statement on the cross in Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus almost always refers to God throughout the Gospels. I encourage you, do your studying as Father. Father, when you pray, Father, my Father in heaven, my Father in heaven, my Father has many mansions. Even on the cross in Luke 23, verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Later on in Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So why is Jesus here saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, usually we only forsake someone. We only give up on someone. We only leave someone when we've completely lost hope in them. Someone who has continually done us harm. Someone who's a threat to us or to our family. We forsake them. Right? We do this on a pretty consistent basis. Maybe you forsake a restaurant because you had a bad experience with them, right? Now you're saying forsaken, right? I'm never coming back here again. You're, you're giving up on them entirely. Our, our phones, right? We forsake phone numbers because it's always a robot salesman, right? So I go ahead and I block that. You're on my forsaken list, right? I never want to hear from you again, right? We've given up entirely on them. Why would we forsake someone? Could you imagine forsaking your own child, your own son and daughter? 
And some of us, maybe we have to go through it because they're not changing, right? The hope is lost. Only God can save them. We have to realize as human beings, we're not Jesus. We're not who saves people. Jesus is who saves people. So every once in a while, the only way to show love is by putting some division there between someone. But can you imagine having to forsake your own child? How difficult it is? Now imagine forsaking your good kid, right? The, the one that's always obedient. The one that's always acting correctly. The one that's always showing respect and love to mom and dad. Could you imagine forsaking them? You see, Jesus was not just a well-behaved child. Jesus was a perfect child. In John 4, 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus is saying, the one thing that sustains me is doing what my father tells me to do. It wasn't just a good son. He was a perfect son. In John 6, 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Why would God forsake his only begotten son who's only been obedient to him? who's been perfectly obedient to him. He says the one thing that sustains him, the one thing that brings him life, the one thing that brings him joy is to do the will of the Father who sent him. Why would God forsake such a good and perfect son? You see, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 starts giving us some insight here. It tells us, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. And we'll close up here. Isaiah 53. Another Old Testament prophet. Giving us this incredible prophecy of the coming Messiah. Jesus has fulfilled all this. Isaiah 53. Why would God forsake a perfect son or daughter? Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Right? We, we have to sit back and realize we can never comprehend what Jesus Christ went through on the cross for me or for you. Not only was he forsaken by God, but he was despised and rejected by men. You see, oftentimes we go through difficulties in life, and usually we at least have that one person that we deep down know, if we call them, they'll be there for us. That one person we can cry on their shoulder. That one person we can go out to coffee with. That one person we can talk to. But Jesus there on the cross was alone. Alone and left with those bulls of Bashan, right? Demons encircling him, messing with him, gaping at him. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. 
It tells us that he was bruised beyond human recognition, beaten beyond human recognition. The crown of thorns bashed into his head, being punched over and over again with a bag over his head. His beard ripped out of his face. He did not look like a human. Sometimes you're going through the mall or you're out and about and you see someone else with a bad burn, a bad burn victim, or someone with a human deformity, and then you look and you look away because of just the pain and the agony that it brings to your heart and your mind. And as mankind saw Christ, we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. And even today, how often we harden our hearts towards Him. And we hide our face. He tries to look at us in the eyes. He tries to tell us, you're forgiven. You're loved. Come to me. You're weary. You're tired. Come to me. The world hates you, wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Come to me. And instead of humbling ourselves and coming to him, we continue to hide, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Why was he forsaken by God? Because he was wearing my sins. He was forsaken by God because he was wearing your sins, past, present, and future. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He was bruised for our iniquities, for my iniquities, the chastisement that I deserved. He took it, and it's by his stripes that we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, Jesus there upon the cross took on the payment for the sins of the world. Our sins require an eternal payment. The wages of sin is death. An eternal payment is required for our sins for our fighting with God, our going against God, our doing things our own way instead of God's way, it requires an eternal price and payment. So Jesus, being the eternal being, the one person of the Godhead, being that eternal being, he takes on that full payment and that full wrath of God so that we could come into the family of God. So that we could be part of that spirit of adoption, and now we can cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 10 in Isaiah 53, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Sometimes we have this bad mentality that God and Jesus are sort of like good cop, bad cop, right? God is there with the lightning bolts. He's, he's the one throwing the chair against the wall. And then Jesus comes and offers us the water and the coffee. But to sit back and consider the love that God has for us. right? For many of us, if we see our son or daughter going through sorrow or going through pain, what's the first thing you do as a parent? Whatever you can to stop the sorrow or stop the pain. But you see, God loved you so much 
that he allowed Jesus to go through all of this pain and torture and torment. And he had the power to stop it at any point. The being that spoke the earth into existence, the being that spoke all of creation into existence with just his words, more than capable of stopping the pain and the torment, and yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was considering how much he loved you. He was considering being able to adopt you and bring you and me into the family of God. Again, so much Old Testament prophecy on Jesus Christ. So again, what are we to leave here with this morning, right? Considering the mathematical probabilities of Jesus Christ, right? Yeah, that's a good thing to consider. It's good to know that our faith is not just a blind faith. Should we just be considering the Lego movie prophecies? I hope not, right? I hope that's not what you're thinking of. What should we be considering? Psalm 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Imagine being adopted into a family and the price they paid to adopt you was selling their only other child. That's what God has done for us. To adopt you and me, he literally said, hey, I'm going to send my own son to die, to be beaten and bruised. Jesus was willing to let go of his power and position there in the Godhead, there being completely omnipotent. And now he goes and he comes into the form of a human as a baby, not born into royalty, born in a manger, right? Not born in all the power and all the glory. No, he's born in complete obscurity. Not born where he has a lot of money, he's a good businessman. No, he had nowhere to lay his own head. He goes through all this to adopt you and me. So what should we leave here with this morning? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was willing to be forsaken by God the Father. The only time in all of eternity, in all of history, where the Godhead, in a sense, is broken and forsaken. That perfect agape love between the three of them is now broken because Jesus is wearing my sins. So that's what we should leave with this morning. Lord, why would you be willing to forsake your only begotten son for me? Not a bad son, not a mean son, a perfect son. You are willing to forsake him for me. And then for us to take a step back and say, man, am I ashamed of the gospel? Am I afraid of paying something more to God, of giving up more to God, of picking up my cross daily and following him? Am I afraid of bringing the gospel into the work Christmas party, right, or the family Christmas party? Am I ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ after he hung there upon the cross naked, beaten and bruised for my sins? So I think that's the best thing to leave here with this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you never prayed that prayer, if you don't know if you're adopted into the family of God, I encourage you, come up front and pray with one of the pastors. So hey, worship team, if you can come up. Pastors, you can come up. Let's all stand and uh, we'll close in worship. And we'll close in song. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. And Lord, just help us. Help us to consider the cost, to consider the cost that you, God the Father, have paid. Lord, to consider the cost, Jesus, that you've paid, how now you're in a, a, a body, a resurrected body, but it's because of us. It's because of your great love for us that now you'll be in that body and still have those nail marks in your hands for the rest of eternity. 
Lord, help us to consider, help us to take a step back and do the math that's required, God. And Lord, Lord, I pray that you'd give me boldness, Holy Spirit. Fill me, fill me with faith, fill me with boldness, God, to just share the gospel with others, Lord. To just lay the truth out there, to just throw the seed and cast it out there, Lord. And for the parents here of prodigals, for maybe the kids here that their parents are out to lunch, they're prideful, they're hard-hearted, Lord. Pray that you'd give us the power to pray in hope, Lord. And to pray in faith that, Lord, you can still do it. They're still alive. They're still breathing. So, Lord, you can totally still open their eyes and soften their hearts, God. Lord, we ask that you please answer those prayers this month, Lord, before the end of the year. That we'd have more brothers and sisters to step into eternity with, God. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. And, Lord, just thank you for your word. Lord, help us to just spend more time in your word, Lord, to just get to know you more and more. So, Lord, we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.